0: Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We've often been hearing a lot about this core web vitals and, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting subject that's coming. And so we have Addy and Chris from Google to talk with us. They're the experts. So they're going to share a lot of information with us. Addy and Chris, can you give brief introductions of who you are, what you do and what your favorite happy hour beverage is?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Addy Osmani. I'm a senior staff engineering manager working on Chrome and web performance. Uh, all of my thoughts are definitely not web vital. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I've forgotten your question.
0: Oh, you've covered most of it. And then what is your favorite happy hour beverage?
1: I, I enjoy some good rum right now. I'm having some bai. I'm taking it very light. Nice.
2: My name is Christopher Baxter, I'm a software engineer at Google. Um, My job is to make websites. Um, That's how I typically explain what I do. Wait, (laughs) wait, isn't that all of our jobs? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, But The thing that I focus on at Google is web performance as it relates to websites outside of Google. So what I mean by that is um, uh, trying to help pages perform better as they're linked to by Google search, for instance, which we think makes the web a better place um, if things are faster and more responsive. Um, so that's what I do. That's who I am. A uh, favorite beverage. I, I love beer. I think beer is fantastic. I think I said that the last time I was on those. So this time I will call out a specific beer, which is Spotted Cow from New Glarus because I'm here in Wisconsin and that's the only place you can get it.
0: And it's, it's a good beer. I'm, I'm a fan. I've only had it a few times. Ryan Anklum was nice enough to bring me a few times. Uh, it's great. All right. Well, let's also give introductions of today's panelists. Augustus,
3: you want to start it off? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Augustus here, and I'm a software engineer at Twitch.
4: I am Shirley Wu, independent creator of data visualizations. I'm Stacey, Stacey London. I'm a senior front end engineer at Trello.
0: And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Frontend Happy Hour podcast, if we choose a keyword that, if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Trade-offs. 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 All right. I'm sure we're going to be talking about some trade-offs, so that will likely come up. I want to start off by asking you all, what are Core Web Vitals? What is this? What are we talking about?
1: I guess I can, I can take a stab at this and then hand, hand things off to Chris for the better answer. Oh, um, no. Would...
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you just like, you're like, I'm going to ease this in and then I'm going to throw it all on him. You threw him
1: under the bus hard. I love it. It's, it's what I'm here to do. So I, w- I would say that uh, historically, when we thought about web performance, a lot of people, um, you know, thought about things like, you know, the load event, uh, but that that is not particularly well tied to things like how users experience web pages. And so over the last couple of years, we've been trying to evolve how we think about performance to be framed around it like a few key questions, and those questions are things like, you know, you type in a URL into your browser, is it happening? Did, you know, the navigation start, has a server actually started responding with anything at all? Is it useful? Has enough content actually rendered for you to be able to get some good value out of that page? Is it usable? Can you start interacting with it? And then after it's loaded, you start getting into this interesting space of, is that page and is that experience delightful? So are, you know, is the page relatively smooth and settled? Is it free of lag or jank? And, the Core Web Vitals kind of build on this overall idea. They're a set of kind of unified guidance for quality signals that we think are kind of foundational to most web pages. And so it's kind of like three, three metrics in there. There's largest contentful paint, first input delay, and cumulative layout shift. I'm going to let Chris talk about what those oh. metrics do. Oh, that's a good question.
2: Uh, well, so. I wanna expand slightly on the, the, the first part too, because I think there's, um, there's a little bit that's uh, not, not well understood about Core Web Vitals. Um, and so the, there are a lot of web vitals, right? A lot of signals about the reliability and usability of a page, but there's only a certain subset of those extended web vitals that are applicable to all pages. And that's what Core Web Vitals represents. So you could imagine a set of signals in the web vitals that extend beyond the three that we're talking about mostly. Um, So for instance, accessibility signals or around uh, signals that pertain to the uh, ongoing interactions on a page, like long tasks um, on a page. Um, And those are not applicable to all pages right now. Um, And that's not because they're not applicable to all pages. It's because they're just not fully measurable yet. So you could expect that right now, the definition is three things, right? Um, and that's because it's measurable and knowable from all pages. But as knowledge increases and capabilities increase, more things could qualify. Um, and it really ties around, like Addie said, that, that end user experience. Is this actually something usable for, for folks to try and uh, consume and use and participate in the, the largest library ever to grace the planet. And the, the last thing is it is measurable from real user data. It's not lab data. It's from real users act, actively using real things on the real web. Um, and that means that you don't have hypothetical arguments or concerns about technology choices, right? It doesn't matter if you use React or Preact or Ember or whatever else, what matters is what end users get and how the, the those those documents and these things work. Uh, So Addy mentioned LCP, FID, and uh, and CLS. So I I am cheating. I pulled up the definitions for these some warning in advance, Uh, but but really um, LCP is about giving something to a user that is not just a, a filler piece of information on the page. It's something that represents the content well enough that you can understand what the page is doing. So for instance, if it was a very large image on an e-commerce like, uh, item page, that would be the LCP um, element, the largest contentful paint item. Um, so first input delay is about interactivity and it's specifically around the interactivity for that first input. So there's a tremendous number of documents across the web that have this hydration pattern in many different frameworks where something looks ready but then you go to interact with it and you have to wait a very long time for that first interaction. Since that's pretty easily measured compared to a lot of other interactive metrics, that applies. And then the last item is cumulative layout shift. And cumulative layout shift is the one that I think is the the most interesting of these three uh, because it's fairly new um, comparatively. Um, And it aims to understand how content moves on a page without the user's permission. So, uh, this is specifically the, the example I always give is a, a shopping cart with two buttons. One is buy one shirt and one is buy a thousand shirts. And you go to click on buy one shirt and you accidentally click on a thousand because
1: it moves. So, your example of cumulative layout shifts is probably better than the one that I usually give people, Chris. I usually say, you know, imagine you're in the Bay Area and you're like reading a book during an earthquake. That's what CLS feels like. Because everything's kind of shaking around the page. But I liked your shopping cart example. I thought that was like it's pretty close to what most people probably feel. I mean, some people
0: might be sitting in the Bay Area, get reading the book <laughs> and that happening. I mean, it's never happened to me yet, but uh, it makes sense. I like it.
5: It's like when you go to a recipe site and you scroll really fast right away because you know you want to get past the 200 um, paragraph introduction to get to the recipe and you get to it. But then all that other stuff actually loads yes. and then you get scrolled out and then you lost the recipe.
0: <laughs> I like that too. Yeah. Or the ads start shifting in and you're like, wait, that's,
2: I, I was reading that. Speaking of trade-offs, those, uh, those articles. <laughs> cheers, are cheers, big cheers. <laughs> where they're trying to figure out how to uh, balance advertising revenue and content with uh, other factors, right? Um, yeah. The recipe industry as a whole is fascinating. It's a very unusual anomaly across the web Uh, Not many other places look like recipe websites um, uh, across the web.
0: And so, Chris, when you say there's the uh, trade-offs, cheers, Cheers. that they're dealing with ads and like that can actually hurt the content and that's like hurting scores ranking for these metrics.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you're, uh, let's say you're, you're a recipe website and you have five really, really good recipes, right? Your lasagna is amazing, right? And people visit your website for your lasagna. You really wanna capitalize on the fact that those five recipes are what people come to your site to see, right? And so a lot of uh, recipe websites or other things too, right? And I'm not trying to pick on recipe websites, but um, a lot of those pages will have a lot of ads on them that rotate and change, without the user's request. Um, and it's because that is the prime piece of content that provides revenue that supports the rest of that content, right? Yep. Um, it's a tough trade-off for you to figure out how to monetize <laughs> your, your, uh, your content.
1: Cheers. I wanted to build on um, what Chris was saying very quickly. I think that one of the challenges we see recipe sites, all sorts of sites struggle with at the moment when it comes to layout shift, is that uh, you need to really set dimensions on a lot of the content in your pages to make sure that the browser has kind of got these kind of spaces reserved so that, you know, text loads, all this other content loads, so that nothing else is going to shift things around. Um, With sites that, you know, use a lot of ads, in particular dynamic ads, uh, it can be tricky to set those dimensions ahead of time um, in a way where, you know, maybe the server can give you those dimensions consistently. And that's where we're seeing people like now start to think about, well, how do, I, how do I tackle that? Do I look at all of the ads I might serve and maybe you know, figure out what the median height and width of them you know, are and set that as like the fixed container size? What do I do about any space that's left around that kind of iframe? And these are really interesting questions. They're also really interesting challenges that I don't think we've necessarily solved just yet. But I'm glad the CLS is causing us to, to at least question them and have those discussions.
0: Yeah, and I think it builds a better user experience too because like, I mean, we just said about the recipe site and how you're in the middle of reading and then ads just fly in and, and it does. It, re, it shifts everything around. It's it's super obnoxious. I found even worse on a mobile device too because you've got limited real estate. And now it's like, where am I? Now I've got to scroll even more to get to where I wanted to be. Um, so I, I do love that. And I think that, you know, to even your point, Trying to figure out those sizes when it's dynamically, that's hard. And it'd be cool too, is like maybe even getting that from ad services where it's like you are getting something sent to the server, which that's hard too, because these are all on the client. Super interesting problem to try and solve.
2: Yeah, the the next part of that too, that um, uh, makes it impossible at many times for you to know the size of an ad always because of things like header bidding. Or because of uh, very complex algorithms that are being applied to determine what part of an inventory from the n number of providers you work with will actually fulfill that slot at this time. Uh, the, it's It's very difficult to get this right. Um, and the only answers that really exist so far that, that do a decent job are also controversial.
0: I am curious on a little bit on some of this too is you mentioned new metrics, why these metrics or why are they so important? And I mean, it's come up a little bit as you've both been talking, why the metrics and like,
2: why now? I'll go first this time and then Addie can give the real answer. <laughs> but, um, I think why now? Let's start, let's start there. Yeah. Um, well, uh, if not now, when is really part of the answer, right? The best answer would have been many years ago. Um, right. The second best answer is today. The, the, the real reason though is a lot of these things were not measurable for a very long time. And there wasn't enough data to prove, right? That the, these were valuable things to users, right? We can all create metrics that we think are interesting or usable, but you really need user research to inform those decisions. It can't just be an arbitrary, Chris doesn't like layout shift, so the web shouldn't have it. That'll be horrible, right? Um, everyone's websites would not have any custom fonts on them. They'd be really ugly uh, be if it was Chris's web. Um, but, but, uh, but as a result, like y- you need to take into account user research. And that, that is, I think, the main motivator for why now. Also, things like CLS were harder to measure for a very long time because they're potentially very expensive to measure. Imagine you the browser and every time you paint something, you have to remember how large that surface was the last time you painted it. And if it changes, you have to then understand what kind of scoring to apply to that next paint for every frame, for every single element on the compositor. Like it gets expensive and difficult to calculate. And the engineers in the Chrome team are really smart and they were able to make it work.
1: Chris got it right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that his answer is probably the the right one, and I'll I'll add some some cliff notes to that that are probably left good. Um, I think that we've been working on trying to speed up the web for a very long time, and, and lots of people uh, have been contributing to this effort. But we've also had a lot of metrics. You know, this isn't the first year where, you know, Google or other browser vendors are coming out and saying, "Hey, take a look at these metrics, try to improve them." You know, we've had things like the Lighthouse Report, we've had Pagespeed Insights giving you a score and these other tools trying to score you on user experience. But to be honest, I think that there's always this risk of us coming up with a lot of different signals and a lot of different metrics that people have to pay attention to, and where do you focus your time? Um, one of the things I like about the Core Web Vitals is that it's really this, this nice filter um, on user experience, just getting you to think about like, what is fundamentally important. Um, Chris already talked about what, you know, what the metrics do, but I like this idea of at least giving you a finite set of things to start off with. And the core vitals are really just a starting point. You know, if, if you understand user experience, if you care about optimizing user experience, there are probably lots of other signals that your site also cares about taking a look at. So a good way to think about it is it's really just the beginning of a longer journey um, in terms of optimizing your experience.
0: That's really cool. We've all been there. We've all like probably seen that too, for especially on the performance side. You know, we looked at metrics like TTI for so many years, and then it was time to render or we just started to try and focus on something. It may not have been perfect, but I love what you all, I think had said too, is we needed the user research too, right? It's like or on something like TTI, it was like, okay, well, this is something that we can measure, and you can see that go up or down over time. It's giving you something, but it may not be the best metric. And I love that these metrics actually really hit on user experience because that's what we're trying to make the web do. It's, it's we're not just making it fast for us. Like, I mean, it's not just like, yeah, my site is ten seconds faster. There's a reason why it, that it is. It's for the better user experience.
5: I wanted to ask just for everyone's benefit on who's listening to the show as well as TTI or Timed Interactive, I think, was a pretty commonly used metric. What is the difference between kind of what that was capturing and what Web Vitals are doing? I'll, I'll start
1: off by saying that uh, we've been working on interaction readiness metrics um, for a very long time. And there are metrics that are really good uh, from a diagnostic perspective. So things that we can measure well in the lab. And time to interactive is one, is one of those metrics that are really good from a lab setting. We can help you understand like holistically, what is the overall cost of heavy JavaScript, long tasks that might be pushing out how soon people can like interact with UI. But metrics like TTI are also a little bit harder to measure in the field. And this is one of the reasons why we have first input delay. Like the first experience people have trying to interact with your site is a pretty important one. You know, people say that first impressions matter. And I think that it's good to think of FID as being this, this starting point. We are thinking about, you know, what are other metrics that allow us to reason about interaction readiness for a user's entire session? I don't think we're, we're quite there just yet. But yeah, Chris, do you have any, any other thoughts on, on this one? Yeah, I, I really like the
2: breakdown of lab versus real world metrics. So the the things that matter the most are what happens with real users on real devices on real networks that are accessing your content from all over the globe. But when you're trying to figure out how to improve, that's a really lossy signal too, right? It's it's uh, there's a lot of delay. You can't simulate that on your local device. You can't see how the responsive changes would happen if you tweak. Uh, one thing or another thing. Um, and so that that's where the lab metrics come in. The lab metrics are a proxy for the real world metrics. And so things like TTI are very valuable in those lab settings, and you can tune and 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 you know, really iterate and get to a place where you're ready to put something new out and then see that it does correlate or does not uh, in the real world metrics. So yeah, that that, that separation, I think, is pretty vital for uh, for for understanding where to make changes.
0: I'd be interested too, is this is, it's coming to take effect soon, right? we we should be expecting best practices to start. People should start adopting this soon, right? People should start now if okay. they haven't already.
1: <laughs> All right, um,
0: fair. The,
2: but the, the, the reason for that is because the, the metrics are observable, the things that you can capture and are things that you can actually see the, 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 the value of in real world de- de- devices Um, in in many different ways. So for instance, if you go to PageSpeed Insights or Search Console from Google, um, you you can see what the data from Chrome visits um, are for these specific metrics um, for for your your domain. But you can also capture it locally. And there are plenty of tools like Next.js that have built-in integrations to capture it automatically for you and and other providers as well, not just Next.js.
0: So what should engineers be doing? Like, What are some best practices, things that they should be thinking about pretty much now, like you said?
1: One of the great things about Core Web Vitals is that it's encouraging us to take a long, hard look at what is actually important in our pages. And how do we reason about how soon they should be getting delivered to our users? So, you know, we talked earlier about things like largest contentful paint. In a lot of pages that might end up being like your hero image or some large imagery or large text content on the page. If it's imagery, there are a lot of like existing best practices around, you know, using modern image formats, whether it's AVIF or WebP or something else, um, making sure that you're not sending down, you know, overly high DPR images to your users, you're compressing them and, and that type of thing. Um, we talked about web fonts. There are lots of best practices around web font loading too. But then you get into this interesting place where you have to reason about, well, do I do things like preload the key scripts in my experience because they're important for rendering anything? Do I preload my largest contentful paint image because that's important too? Do I preload my web fonts? And you can easily get into this place where you're trying to Look at trade-offs between <laughs> all these other things that are important Cheers. in your
2: pages. Cheers. 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 I'm gonna pick on web fonts a little bit, um, just because it's a thing that I've been looking at for way too long. Um, uh, sometimes there isn't a perfect answer for what to do, and, and web fonts is definitely in that that category. There is no absolute perfect right answer for how to load web fonts in a way that satisfies everything. So for instance, if you decide to use font display swap, what will happen if your, your fallback font and your network font have slightly different kerning and leading, what can happen is a fairly large content uh, CLS violation. Because as the web font loads, it, the font takes up more space and moves things around. If you use font display optional, then you will never have a swap, right? It will always use whatever is available within that first region of time. Um, but that means that there is a higher likelihood that the web font will not load from the network in time, and the user will effectively only have what was the fallback during that for that entire page view. There's also other trade-offs. So for instance, you could instead try very hard to make your fallback font look like, uh, in terms of kerning and leading and other attributes of the font, look like what your network font will be like. So when the swap does occur, it doesn't cause as much uh, content shift. But before the font loads, that font now with its custom settings may look hard to read or very strange, right? And as a result, your users may think something's broken. And so they might reload the document as a result of that. There isn't a perfect answer. There's always a set of trade-offs. You have to pick the things that are important for your product and optimize around them.
3: Cheers. 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 I do
0: like that though, because it's like there isn't perfect answers for all these things. Like you have to really think about it is yes, there's these metrics that you want to be great at, but there's also things that you're just like, I can't be perfect at it. And you have to think strategically through that. So I love that. I'm avoiding trying really hard not to say the keyword <laughs> as I was talking about that.
4: <laughs> I, I actually have a question, which I don't know how niche my question is because. Um, As a person that makes data visualizations for the web, I think what I do is quite niche, but I'm actually a little bit scared. (laughs) of, you know, all of these scenes happening because with data visualizations, one of the biggest struggles I have is performance. Um, One of the biggest problems I have is sometimes my data sets are just really big. And, you know, even if I break them up, like it's either a few megabytes of data that I just need to load to be able to render at minimum. um, And I either break that up into multiple requests or which is, you know, not good, or just one big request. Um, My visualizations, most of the times I use Canvas for big things, but sometimes if I'm using SVG, like if I have thousands of nodes, all of these things have made it such that I'm kind of scared of performance and being judged by performance on the web. I've tried my best over the years to get better at it. But I guess the question I have is, what would you say as advice to People that do do things like, I don't know, data viz or, you know, the people that work with WebGL or make like, you know, really intensive games online or, um, so yeah. I,
2: I want to go first on this one because I, I want to say that what you do is not niche. I think it's amazing. Data <laughs> visualization is a very important part of the web. It is a visual form of a very complex set of information and it allows people access to information that they wouldn't normally have. For me, that's like one of the core tenets of what the internet is supposed to do. I love cat memes as much as, <laughs> much as anyone else, but I really love that we have this enormous database of information that, that we get to learn from. Um, so beside that, um, uh, I think what you do is you. awesome. Uh, but beside that, I think that there, there are decent answers for this. Um, so number one, doing your best is the best. Just that's great, continue trying to do the best that you can. The second thing is there are all sorts of facade patterns that specifically help quite a bit with things like data visualizations. So for instance, let's say your data visualization wasn't in the first viewport of a page. That is a great opportunity for lazy loading that content, which would delay the, the amount of uh, impact of the, to the metrics. Uh, the, the second thing is, uh, Let's say that that even if it was um, on the first viewport, um, you can represent that content with something that's more like a static image at first while it's loading network resources. And it's not a perfect answer, right? It doesn't give you the, the rich visualization that is to come, but it does give users an indication of what that thing will be. And that's, that's the, the thing that these metrics are trying to help with, is to help give an informed answer to end users about what content does um so th- those are two things that i i would i would try out
1: yeah that's what chris said i think that in addition to data visualization we're seeing a lot of cases where there's rich highly interactive content that people usually want to include in their pages via embeds right so everything from tweets to youtube videos to i don't know embedded cat memes chris was saying <laughs> and those those exact same groups have got very similar questions like hey I want to be able to keep you know injecting my cat memes into my pages. Are core web idol is gonna you know stop me from doing that. And we're having those exact same discussions. Should you be like rendering something lightweight and static that you then progressively enhance when somebody tries interacting with the embed, or if it's off screen, maybe lazy loading those resources or prefetching those resources at a different point in time ultimately i think that for a lot of these use cases there is some ux that will enable you to still you know give your users what they need without negatively impacting performance but it will hopefully also open up these discussions for like for people who do need to show the full rich version of those data vizs right on page load what is a better solution is moving it more the server side, like the right solution. I don't know, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we can have more of those conversations. And it's it's going to take time. I think a hard question that we as Google are, are getting uh, at the moment is, you know, I, I open up my site on on PageSpeed Insights or any of these other tools, and it looks like Google Ads and Analytics and YouTube and Google Tag Manager and all of these other wonderful things that can sometimes be important for interactivity or revenue are like hurting my performance in some way. And people are wondering like, okay, well, does Google have a plan around all this stuff? We are talking at the moment to a lot of these teams and are trying to strategize around how we can either improve the defaults longer term, figure out like what are good well-lit pads in the short term that can help you you know, at least get your performance into a good place. Ultimately, we want to do this in a way where you still get a really good user experience without experiencing, you know, loss of conversions or loss of any of these other things that you care about. But this is like this is a, a, a collaboration and a shared discussion we're going to be having with the rest of the ecosystem too. So it, it'll take time, but I'm hopeful we can get there.
0: I hadn't even thought of Google Tag Manager. That one I hadn't even thought about it, and that one always scares me because it's literally just a container that like people insert pixels and other JavaScript it's not the tag manager that scares me. It scares me as like the people inserting things. Cause so you're like, yeah, hey, you can just put whatever you want in here. And so that is scary to think about. And I'm sure there are things that even the tag manager could do to kind of try and prevent some of those uh, maybe not so good scripts being there.
1: I've, I've been learning a lot more about tag managers than I ever thought I'd want to uh, <laughs> recently. Uh, there, there are some great stories people have. I, I've heard all sorts of things. I heard about um, one team who, you know, they were people who are like slightly less technical, but they wanted to be able to make changes to production for their front end without needing to go through the engineering team or QA. So they just used Google Tag Manager to and Query Selector to like <laughs> modify the UI And just, you know, push an experiment out to 100% of the audience, which is certainly one way to go about it. And, you know, at the end of the day, I understand what people are trying to do. Um, I do think that, again, this will open up conversations around like, what are the right places for us to give you insight about the cost of some of the decisions you might be making? And hopefully, if people can reason about those costs, maybe they won't necessarily do things that hurt the user experience accidentally. Yeah, I mean, you would say. (laughs) definitely trade-offs (laughs) cheers cheers
5: cheers cheers
0: so we talked about like best practices for engineers and and how they can start investing in this is the goal to just try and look at core web vitals and just say all green and then you're good like is that how people should be approaching it is just checking those metrics and as long as they hit 100% green we're good
2: to go uh no there's plenty to <laughs> Why am with. I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the first thing I think worth pointing out here is um, a very clear set of information that's on web.dev slash vitals around how what core web vitals are. I'm going to just kind of briefly try to quote what it says. I'm not going to get 100% right, but effectively there the, it says something along the lines of like, the metrics that make up Core Web Vitals will evolve over time. And the reason for this is that there are more things that will be measurable enough that apply to the entire web. Um, And so you can imagine additional metrics being added or additional constraints or knowledge around how these metrics are captured. So if you're in the middle of a a set of performance optimizations around Core Web Vitals, don't just look at Core Web Vitals. There's plenty of other things to also be thinking of. Uh, it's a good opportunity to also do things like revisit the way that you do uh, integration testing for uh, your accessibility. Um, is this a great time to make sure you're using Axe Core or something similar to understand your accessibility story? You can also spend time thinking about things that are not currently captured by Core Web Vitals, like long tasks after the first input. Uh, There's things like total blocking that occurs on a page. Um, These are good things to start understanding and measuring on your own because they pertain to good user behavior um, and a good user experience, sorry, not behavior. But but yeah, there's plenty of other things to do. Um, And if you focus just on Core Web Vitals alone, you're missing a big part of the picture.
0: Well, I, I wasn't surprised that you answered that way, but it, it's good to know that like, there's other things we should all be thinking about. This is important, but there's still so many other important things to be thinking about as we're building our websites. I would be curious though, before we jump into pics, what's next? Like what, you know, we said that this isn't the end and I even hear you all say that we're, you know, we're still learning and, and iterating on things. What are some things that we should be expecting in the future or preparing for? Mm-hmm.
1: I think that if you go back to some of those original key questions that were mentioned at the start um, of this discussion, you know, you think about that, is it happening moment and the core Web vitals don't strictly include a metric for that right now. You know, we have largest contentful paints for, is it useful, but there are some metrics in this space that could touch on that. Things like first contentful paint could maybe fit in that bucket. Um, there are things we could be doing to evolve some of the existing metrics in for Web Vitals. So for cumulative layout shifts, um, there are improvements we could make so that it can better evaluate long-lived pages and changes that people might be, you know, seeing as you interact with the experience a little bit more. And there are, as, as Chris was mentioning, earlier, there's lots of other signals that could potentially someday find their way into Web Vitals. Um, I would personally love to see more signals for things like accessibility be in there. You've probably, you know, some folks have maybe noticed that in places like the Chrome DevTools, we've tried to encourage uh, more testing for things like color contrast, um, because that's important too. Um, Should there be a metric around that? I don't know, but I, I would love to see if we could encourage more people to build accessible sites too.
0: So would I, I think that that's something we should be paying attention more on.
2: Yeah, I, I think from my perspective, the, the, the things that I would like to see next, because I don't actually know what's going to come next, right? We're not certain um, at this point, what, what, what is next? But the things I'm particularly interested are around accessibility. And um, I, I think that that is something that we can do a little bit better at the minimum at a static analysis level. Um, across the entire corpus of the web. Um, But the the other aspects that we can also start to improve on are around those long lived tasks. So Addy was specifically mentioning layout shift for longer documents. If you have a single page application, then your cumulative layout shift can increase rather high as a person soft navigates between page to page to page, right? There are a couple of proposals out there that are trying to address that specific piece Um, of the puzzle. There's also potential for new web platform primitives that make it not necessary to do as much soft navigations, um, things like portals and other So lots to come. It's a very exciting time to be a web developer um, as it has been since the invention of the web. It
0: just keeps getting more interesting and keeps getting more complicated too, but it also keeps it more interesting. All right. Well, on each episode of the Front End Happier podcast, we'd like to share picks of things that we've found interesting and want to share with all of you. Stacy, do you want to start it off?
5: Sure. Two picks. Uh, the first one is a song called Gold by Glassjaw. Um, so I guess the genre of this would be post-hardcore. <laughs> um, it was a recommendation from uh, a guy named Ben Sharp, who is from Cloud Kicker, which is another uh, band that I really like. So if you want to listen to something a little heavier, that, that cue Always. that up. Uh, and then the second pick is Clipper, Another Five Years by Overmono, And this is a a British duo, um, sort of Apex 20, if you like that kind of techno. Um, it's from 2020, but it kind of feels like, I don't know, throwback to like the mid 2000s. Um, that's a good, good headphone tune.
3: Augustus, what do you have? Sure, I have uh, two picks, but actually, if I could quickly before I go into them, I just want to give a shout out to the Chrome team um, and like their passion for like taking a stance on like performance. Like I work in the ad, I work under the ads umbrella of Twitch. And like one of the things that we were hit by was Chrome took a stance on ad intervention. You know, like if your ads have heavy resources, then they're just going to remove them. Of course, some people were pissed about it, <laughs> but like, you, you, I find it kind of inspiring, to, but that's a strong stance to take. And Google makes a lot of revenue from ads, right? So it'd be easy for them to say, yeah, let's just let them play. But I, I think it's really inspiring that the Chrome team can take kind of that kind of, kind of strong stance and prioritize user experience. So, yeah, I just want to give that quick shout out. I mean, it, it holds a high bar. I like yeah. it. No, we should be challenging
0: everyone. It's yeah. like, this is the same as being challenged as an engineer to like do better on performance to make a better user experience. It's like same thing for ads. Let's challenge that and make better experiences. So I think it's exactly. Great. Woohoo hoo
3: But uh, yeah, so on that note, um, one of my picks is actually uh, um, on web.dev. There is, uh, there is not only the web vitals. Um, um, post, but there's a defining the core web vitals um, thresholds. I think that was a very interesting article uh, just talking about like the thought process of how like the thresholds are kind of determined. Um, you know, it's not just like some numbers were just thrown out. It's actually like data driven. So I thought that was a really insightful article that I think people, it's worth checking out. Um, and then my second pick is this website called Excalidraw.com. Es- I don't know. It's very similar to Lucid charts, but um, I think it's just—it's just a very—I <laughs> don't know. It's, it's it's very similar to Lucid charts, so very useful for system design. You can do collaborative um, drawings with it, but I just think the very subtle like design they add to the designs that you can make with it is just really nice. So yeah, worth checking out.
2: Plus one for Excalidraw. I spend probably <laughs> two hours a day uh, on that site uh, in meetings. <laughs> um, because it's my replacement for a whiteboard.
0: Yeah, no, I've I just like, I had not heard of this one. And I'm like, wow, that is so easy just like to start drawing. I can see how that replaces
2: your whiteboard. And you can share and it has real-time updates with other folks. It's fantastic. And really, really good source. tool. I like, nice. I like
4: the sloppiness. The, when, when you draw, <laughs> like you can, you can stroke it. You can specify the amount of sloppiness of your lines. I love that.
0: That's my whiteboarding skills right there is as sloppy (laughs) as possible. All right, Shirley, what do you have?
4: Ooh, okay. So we've been having a lot of front end happy hour recordings recently, and I feel like I don't have much more left to give for (laughs) pics. So I got only one today, uh, and it is actually Chinese knots, Um, or there's actually, I think, Chinese, and there's, there's actually also Japanese knots and... So Chinese knots in particular are used a lot around Chinese or Lunar New Year, um, which was just this past month. And um, I don't know how to go about describing them, but they're very beautiful. Um, And I actually uh, recently rediscovered them because uh, my studio mate shared with me these gorgeous earrings made with these like very elaborate Um, Chinese knots and it is by an artist named Bao Mi so I'll link her work down below but I recently rediscovered them um, because I've forgotten about them I like you know, used to see them as a child. And these knots, they'll like represent things like fortune or luck or, you know, eternity or so there's many different sorts of knots. um, And each of them means something slight bit different. And I, I love the fact that uh, this artist Mi is kind of like modern, because they do look very traditional and old fashioned. And so she's kind of I feel like modernizing the look a little bit and then we we kind of got into um my studio mates and i like we started learning how to do the knots so this is this is like one of the
0: that's pretty I impressive like, oh thank
4: you this is one of the knots um and this is called a panchan knot and i can't remember what it stands for but there is a meaning behind it they're very beautiful so that's what i have um for today
0: addy what do you have for us
1: I've got two picks. So I was recently re-watching the the Eternal Classic Hackers uh, with Donnie Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie and uh, was appreciating the soundtrack to that once again. There's some really awesome music in there, everything from like Underworld to Prodigy to Orbital. So if folks are feeling nostalgic, check out that soundtrack. It's fantastic. I'm still waiting um, to be able to navigate my file system in the 3D universe. I feel like Mm -hmm. I haven't haven't quite been able to do that just yet, but check out that soundtrack. Um, My other pick is uh, also on web.dev. I feel like we're we're almost like pimping up quite a lot at the moment, but uh, content visibility uh, is is something recent. Um, It's a CSS property that boosts performance and it basically allows you to kind of skip an element's rendering work. Uh, Including things like layout and paint until it's needed. Um, It's relatively new, but there's a great article by uh, Una Corvettes and uh, Vladimir Levin on web.dev about this. So uh, check it out. I
2: love how that evolved from display locking to how it was like this this journey of uh, discovery that it needed to be something exposed in CSS along the way.
0: Very cool. Chris, what do you have for us?
2: So, I have four picks. Is it okay
0: right that on. I have four I mean, picks? It is okay. You haven't been on for a while. Okay. All right. Surely ran out of
2: stuff. So, clearly, you got to
0: <laughs> Please take make up for me.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. So, uh, I'm going to start with uh, ESBuild. Um, everyone probably at this point is starting to hear a lot about ESBuild. But the reason I specifically want to, to call out ESBuild is that I am a compiler author um, and I've worked on very big compilers for many, many, many years. And ES build is a fantastically architected compiler. So it's not about its speed, it's not about how uh, you, the CLI or anything else. What I really, really appreciate about ES build is the constraints and the way that it's been engineered. I think it's a fantastic piece of software. And if you're looking to learn how compilers work and, and, and how to write them, this is a great place to go dive in and learn more about how to build software that uses constraints to its advantage. The second one uh, is something called outsmartly. Um, So A-B testing on the web is hard for a lot of companies. Um, One of the things that uh, has been really interesting about my time at Google so far is learning more about the different parts of the web. So I've worked at many other tech companies and always had a team that I could work with to do A-B testing. So we could build an in-house A-B testing tool, and it was available on our server, and we could modify our contents in our JavaScript and all, all the kind of stuff that I took for granted for a very long time. But that isn't possible everywhere on the web. Um, and in fact, the long tail of the web is dominated in an A-B testing industry that uses client-side A-B testing. Outsmartly and a few other technologies in this space are uh, using uh, things like Cloudflare workers to apply A-B testing in an intelligent way on top of static content in many cases. It's really, really interesting um, and their design actually ties into your components in React, for instance, um, to expose AB information um, in the right way. Really cool project, go check it out. The third thing is a soundtrack. Um, I have kids and I love my kids and we just watched the movie Soul and I am addicted to the soundtrack uh, at this point. I've listened to it on repeat um, it is the only thing that got Def Punk out of, my, uh, out of my daily rotation for a little while. So definitely give that a go. And then the last one is a, um, is a plug for the AMP project. Um, and the reason I mention this is that this is a topic that we've been, we've been talking about Core Web Vitals. Um, and the AMP project is specifically designed around Core Web Vitals and has been for five years. Um, so if you're looking for patterns and inspirations about how to solve things like Core Web Vitals, it's a great place to look. Um, it's also a pretty good web framework uh, for a very specific type of application on the web.
0: Right on. I'm excited to look up uh, into the AB testing too because that has definitely been one like the client side. It just has not been great for to AB test. So I, I love the approach that they're taking with Cloudflare.
1: I'm going to have to check that out. One last plug. Absolutely. All right. Well, since since uh since Chris mentioned AMP. Um, I'm I'm going to give a quick shout out to uh, a few JavaScript frameworks we're collaborating with at the moment, um, where they're you know they care a lot about Core Web Vitals and we're trying to improve the defaults. So a shout out to Next.js, uh, Nuxt, uh, heavily used in the Vue ecosystem, and Angular CLI. Lots of great work going on there across everything from you know image optimization to critical CSS and beyond. So check those out, especially if you're trying to b- build new with apps.
2: Yeah. One of the things I really like too, is they they're using a set of common ideas across all of those different frameworks. Um, And that also includes AMP. So the the concepts are the important part, not necessarily the implementations. So if you have a one-off site built using something else, there's likely something that's happening there that you can, you can learn from um, and apply to your own website. It's pretty cool.
0: All right. Well, I have two picks that are totally unrelated to any AMP or Web Vitals, nothing. Um, It's two shows to distract you from your work. And they're not on Netflix either, both of them are not. So that's interesting enough, too. So one I just finished uh, and actually Jared Jordan, who's been a guest uh, not too many, a few episodes ago. He's the one who recommended to me. It's on Amazon Prime called Tell Us Your Secrets. It's such an interesting, intense story with some twists and turns. I'm not going to say much about it, but I highly recommend going and checking it out. I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but I really enjoyed it. i watched it fairly quickly too. And then for a lighter show, there's a show called Dave on Hulu, which is just this like interesting, goofy show about a Jewish rapper. Totally just kind of dark, funny humor. (laughs) I, I, I totally recommend checking that one out. So before we end the episode, I want to thank Addy and Chris. Always a pleasure to have you. This is both, I think, your second time on the episodes. Thank you again for joining us. We didn't scare you away the first time, which is (laughs) great. Where can people get in touch with you?
1: Uh, People can get in touch with both of us via Chris's official Google email address. I'm happy for him to take all
5: questions. It's at Addy Osmani on Twitter. (laughs) No,
2: I'm I, happy to talk to anyone about performance, Core Web Vitals, the web as a whole. Um, it, it's what I am lucky enough to get to do for work, and I enjoy every single minute of it. So if you, if you ever want to talk about web performance, I'm on Twitter. Um, that's, that's the best way to contact me, um, at Christopher Baxter, and my name is hard to spell, so sorry. <laughs> but uh, but yes, that that's the best place to be.
1: And I'll also be on at Christopher Baxter. Um, no, but <laughs> for real, people can uh, catch me on Addy Osmani on Twitter. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about Core Vitals per for any other user experience bits and bobs.
0: Right on. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at FrontendHH. Subscribe wherever you want to listen to podcasts on, and you can go to frontendhappyhour.com. Any last words?
2: It was really nice being on Fet.
1: Yes. <laughs> <Nice>. yes. <laughs> Cheers. 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 Cheers.